Hi, I'm Post Media columnist Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Please consider subscribing to this show if you haven't already. The Conservative Party of Canada leadership race is now well underway, and we hope to have most of the candidates join us in the months ahead on this show. A few weeks ago, we had Pierre Polyev join us for a conversation, and this week I'm pleased to welcome Leslyn Lewis. She's the Conservative MP for Haldeman Norfolk and placed third in the previous Conservative leadership race. Now, she's running again. Ms. Lewis, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Yeah, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I, I am doing well. Busy times, I, I'm sure, for you. Uh, let's jump right into it and let me ask you, why are you running for the leadership this time? Well, it looks like the same issues that were present last time, Anthony, we haven't resolved them in our country. And I'm very concerned about the direction that our country is going in. I think that we need some policies that are going to unite us and instill hope and unity and confidence in our economy. I'm concerned about our environment. Um, I'm concerned about our social safety nets and that the, the enormous amount of money that we're spending as a government that... Um, um, it's going to put us in a, in, in a place where our social safety nets in the future may be compromised. I'm also concerned about our national unity. And most of all, I'm hearing concerns that people are very, very, very concerned about their their freedoms and, and what that means to things such as uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of religion. These things are being undermined, and uh, I think that we have to focus our country on strengthening our democratic ideals. All right, let's pick up on a few of those. How are our freedoms being undermined right now, would you say? Well, let's start for one small thing that I hear over and over from constituents from people across the country. Right now, I believe we're the only country where an unvaccinated person is not able to board a plane, cannot board a train, and cannot um, get on a boat that is federally regulated. And so many people are concerned about that. We also witnessed the utilization of the Emergencies Act, and that put many people um, in a position of concern because the government was able to freeze bank accounts without due process. And so I have numerous friends who are very successful who've actually picked up and left Canada because of this unsettling thing that's happened. So you know people have said they're leaving Canada specifically because of the financial implications of the Emergencies Act? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because once a government uh, demonstrates to the citizens that um, there's a vulnerability in in your property, things that you've worked for. Remember, people see Canada as a beacon of hope and opportunity for people from all around the world. And when something as simple as due process is compromised and innocent people because they gave to a cause which they believed in, which was not an illegal cause. And as you can see, there's many newspaper articles that are coming out now, which, um, which are stating that they actually spread misinformation about the convoy. So people are saying, yes, so uh, media outlets can spread misinformation and governments can act on that and confiscate or uh, suspend people's civil liberties. 
That is extremely disconcerting in a free and democratic society. So, of course, there's going to be insecurities around that, Andrew. And people who have the means to leave Canada, many of them are doing so. Now, I know a number of experts said for those very reasons, okay, don't be hasty bringing in the Emergencies Act for the first time ever. You want to make sure we meet the threshold. And and many groups like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association said, no, we did not uh, meet the threshold uh, to do that. How do we then, how do we deal with this moving forward? I guess there's no putting the genie back in the bottle, but as you said, you, you know people who are, who are very concerned uh, that this has happened. What, what, what are the next steps forward? What, what would you do differently now? Well, Anthony, we need a process of restoring confidence in critical institutions. One, namely government. The confidence has to be restored in government. And the only way to do that is by listening to the citizenry um, and also by making sure that governments understand what their role is. Their role is that they are elected to serve the people. That that must be restored. They must act in accordance in the best interest of the people. That's the first thing. Then we have to restore the faith in the media because when the media is spreading misinformation about average Canadians, and that leads to the suspension of civil liberties, then everything that comes out of the media becomes distrusted. And so we have to restore that confidence. And the only way we can do that is by going back to the basics, the basics which uphold our constitution, uh, such as our freedom of expression, our freedom of association, our freedom of assembly. When those things are um are um put to the level that they should be in our society and are, are upheld then confidence will be restored in what way would a politician uh the prime minister or someone who's conservative leader play a role in restoring faith in the media because i'm not going to disagree with you that there's certain things in in some news outlets that are, are just not accurate and that's that's causing some problems with the social fabric but just like i was nervous when justin trudeau and the liberals uh, wanted to create new programs to sort of get involved in the media uh, how would you as as conservative leader as conservative prime minister uh restore trust in the media i mean i see that there should be just more work done internally from the media themselves. What is the government role there? Well, um, I, I believe that we need to stop government overreach. So if we look at something like uh, Bill C-11, we need to make sure that we are not enabling institutions and organizations like the CRTC to overreach and to uh, limit people's right to freedomly express themselves. We need to make sure that we are not um, taking away people's freedom to um, to watch what they want to watch um, when, once it's within legal parameters uh, on the internet. And we need to make sure that there's a confidence in our institutions. I, I guess one of the challenges that we've seen is a lot of people who've been frustrated uh, the past six months, year, two years, have seen uh, their faith really erode in a whole variety of institutions right now. And we see this in various uh, polls and these trust barometers that different organizations come up with, that, that there, there is an erosion of just institutional trust in Canada right now. Uh, how would you address that? Well, I think that it has to start with the governments first, as I said, recognizing that these institutions are there for a reason. 
there has to be some um, arm's length between the government and those institutions. The government cannot be seen as manipulating those institutions for the benefit of uh, some sort of partisan outcome. So the the checks and balances that our democracy was based on, we have to return to those. How do we do that in a way that that brings everyone on board? You you, you talked about division uh, earlier and sort of this lack of unity that a lot of people uh, say is going on in Canada right now. How do you address that? Well, Anthony, I think that what we need to do is we need to face reality. And the reality is, is that we're at a five-time year low on national unity. This means that Western Canada, they feel completely disrespected by Ottawa. We have um, issues in Quebec. We have issues with uh, reconciliation. And so we have to start recognizing that all these various sectors of our beautiful country, um, they have unique contributions that they can make, and we need to start valuing those unique contributions. And there are many ways to do that, Anthony. You could do that by implementing laws that respect those particular regions for example the west how could the the west feel valued when we have laws like bill c48 and bill c69 which kills their industry and yet we have more favorable laws for foreign industries foreign oil and gas industries than we do for our own country and we've seen that one when we do that once we pit regions against each other anthony we see that it's Canadians that suffer because right now you're you're suffering at the gas pumps. When you go and you and you're paying um, exorbitant prices for gas, it's because of policies, uh, regional policies that um, that affected and penalize certain regions of the country for political gain. If we had built our pipelines, Anthony, right now, we would be getting our LNG to Tidewater and we would be supplying uh, Europe, who, who accesses 40% of their LNG from Russia. We would be offsetting that. So right now, we are, we are contributing to the fact that we have emboldened Russia, we have um, financed Russia, and now Russia is turning around and invading places like Ukraine. The, that can be directly connected to our uh, LNG policy and our inability to make Canada a self-sustaining nation. Leslie Lewis, I want to take a pause for a moment from uh, the policy. Move to the politics for a second. Looking back at the 2020 Conservative Party leadership race and, and looking at the, the results of that, I think one thing that maybe hasn't been discussed uh, that much is how good of a showing uh, you made in that leadership race for someone who, who didn't have as much of a national profile uh, to begin with as Aaron O'Toole did, who first play, uh, who, who got first place, of course, Peter McKay, who's second place. Uh, I, I'm looking here at the second round results and Aaron O'Toole, uh, 35% of the points allocated, Peter McKay, 34%, yourself at 30%, uh, a very strong third place showing. Uh, how do you plan uh, to build upon that this time around? Well, Anthony, I would even characterize it a little bit differently than you're sure. characterizing it, because in, in actuality, I won the popular vote on the second ballot. I got more votes 
than Aaron and Peter. Right, I see it. 60,000 so, for you, 54,000 for Peter, and then 57,000 uh, for Aaron. It's it's interesting the way all all, all, the, all these things are tabulated in, in this race. Is is this year's uh, leadership going to be the same sort of point system and, and, and same uh, tabulation? Actually, no, um, it's not. So um, those ridings that with fewer than 100 members will only get the amount of votes that's in the writing. So if they have 20, it will be 20 votes. Whereas before, if they had two members, they would still get 100 hmm. points. Uh, so it's and What does that mean for and you for, I, for this time around? Well, I think it's more favorable for someone like hmm. myself. Um, I think that if I had more time during the last leadership race, I would have been able to even bridge that gap under those rules. But as you know, I... I'm an outsider, I'm coming in and I'm not a traditional politician. And so I approach things very differently. And I think that's one of the things that why people gravitate towards me because I'm very, very uh, forthright in what I believe in my policies. I don't have to think about them. I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to misspeak on something. This is what I believe. It may be different than what you believe, Anthony, but I believe that you and I can sit down and have a respectful uh, conversation about even policies that are extremely polarizing because I in, in speaking with people because I love people so I love I love communicating with people so in speaking with people I find that even the person who is so different than than I am has such divergent policies than I do. If we sit down and we have an honest conversation, there's going to be some commonality. And so, Anthony, my political approaches, I like to build bridges. And so I look for those commonalities. And I say, even on something extremely polarizing let's find out where we agree and let's start let's start from there. all right let's talk about some extremely polarizing issues in just a moment we got to take a quick break we'll be back with les and lewis in just a moment before we get to those extremely polarizing issues uh miss lewis you described yourself you said i'm not a traditional politician what do you mean by that well, Anthony, if you look at the other politicians that are running, they've been politicians for years. Some of them have been politicians all of their adult life. I am an entrepreneur. I worked on Bay Street as a lawyer for a few years, and then I started my own business. So I come in with a completely different skill set. I also taught for some time at, at university, but I have a totally different skill sets than the average politician. So I, I find even within politics that I'm very, very unique because I go by, um, this is what I believe, this is what I believe will be in the best interest of Canadians. And so it's not necessarily um, a partisan approach. I can have something in common with someone uh, across the aisle from me, um, someone of a different party. I just look at the policies and the principles. So I have a different way of viewing politics than the average politician who has been entrenched in the system. How do you consider yourself as someone making history, running for conservative leadership as, as the first black woman to do so in this nation? Well, I think it's great that people see um, a, a broad spectrum in our party. And one of the biggest complaints I hear about our party, Anthony, is they say, we don't think your party actually likes uh, people who are not 
white male or blonde and blue eyed hmm. females. That's what I hear. Um, and I'm there to say, well, you know, I actually fit in quite well in the party and I can share the reasons why I gravitated to that party, which is largely because of the divergent um, perspectives, the uh, diversity of ideology and thought that's in our party. And um, I believe that even the average immigrant, when I speak to them and I say, well, this is what I believe, this is what our party believes, they look at me and they say, well, that's what I believe too. And so it's a matter of letting people understand that um, our party is is a big tent party and it and it embraces people from various perspectives, various philosophies, various um, racial and religious and ethnic and uh, background sexual orientation. So all of those things are, um, I think that we need to communicate um, better about our party. But specifically for me, Anthony, as a as the first black woman running to be the leader of the party, I think that what it symbolizes is when a young person, when a child, a, um, a teenager, a young boy or girl of any race, when they look at me and they say, well, she did it. And so this country is really a country of opportunity. And here it is, this party that we thought wasn't all inclusive. They have uh, this individual running for the leader. So it, it dispels some of the myths about, number one, our party. And it confirms that we live in one of the most meritocratic societies in all the world where a black woman can run to be the leader of the conservative party. And people can see that um, we're a country that if you work hard and with hard work and perseverance, you can achieve your goals. Now, there's been a bit of a back and forth going on between Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev, also uh, both candidates in this leadership race. Patrick Brown attacking Polyev, saying that he has, quote, no credibility announcing any sort of policy which largely impacts minority communities. Basically, going back to what you had said about there being this preconceived notion of a you know party of white guys or what have you not welcoming uh, persons from minority communities. And Patrick Brown pointed to uh, the support for barbaric cultural practices tip line in the 2015 election and uh, banning uh, the wearing of the niqab during citizenship swearing in ceremonies that had been something that Stephen Harper had introduced towards uh, the end of his tenure. Uh, what do you think of this idea that uh, that th- there are people who, if they support these policies, there's no, no credibility uh, with minority communities? Um, well, first of all, Pierre Polyev's wife is a minority. I'm not sure if you know that. So I don't think, and I know him personally, and I can tell you that he's he's anything but bigoted. So I don't think that that's a very, very credible comment. Both Pierre Polyev and Mr. Brown were in um, Prime Minister Harper's caucus at that time. And they would have both supported and it wasn't a kneecap ban from my understanding i i'm in parliament and i when i'm wearing a mask and i have to vote i pull down the mask so that and i'm the only black woman on in the conservative party so everybody knows who i am but i still pull down my mask and i identify myself and then i go back and i take my seat so i believe that that was the purpose uh very similar to that of mr harper's kneecap ban 
Patrick Brown supported it. He sent out a newsletter to his constituents in Barrie and Pierre Polyev supported it. Um, so I don't see why they are at each other about this issue that they were both in the party at the same time and they both supported um, that policy. And my understanding is that it wasn't a ban. Now, this is an issue that definitely people like to dredge up more liberals looking to attack conservatives. It's something you'll see in, in a lot of media being brought up, these issues of, of, of burqa ban or however one wants to characterize it. Uh, you mentioned uh, very divisive issues and that you believe you can be a bridge on, on people sitting down and, and discussing on both sides of the aisle. Another issue that frequently comes up, or at least that people like to uh, like to attack the conservative party for, is whether or not uh, members of the party, the leader, uh, too many caucus members are what they would call pro-choice. And then they like to attack them for being pro-choice. Uh, this happened with Andrew Scheer's leadership. A lot of accusations that he, he was uh, not sufficiently, uh, pardon me, he was not sufficiently pro-life. I'm using the wrong terms there. Uh, you've been described a lot as a social conservative. Uh, do you embrace that characterization? And how do you feel that this issue should be discussed now, the pro-choice, pro-life conversation? Well, Anthony, that's the beauty about my party. I'm a fiscal conservative, I'm a libertarian, I'm a social conservative, and there are even some aspects of me that I would support even the what quote-unquote red Tory label. So the, it, it's, I don't think you fit in one particular category. There are policies um, that would fall into a particular category. I have friends who are gay who are social conservatives because they have certain social conservative values. So, and they may How would you describe social conservative then in that context? Because a lot of people kind of disagree on what they mean by that term because some people take social conservative to mean, oh, you're against gay rights, but you're clearly saying that, that uh, these gay persons, you know, probably don't fall into that category. What, how, what do we mean when we even talk about these terms then? Well, I think, well, for social conservatism, for me, is it's basically keeping the government out of my social and personal life. That's that's the fundamentals of it. Social conservatives, and that's why you could have a gay person who's a social conservative, because they believe this, you stay out of my life, you stay out of my bedroom. Those are conservative concepts, actually. And so uh, a typical social conservative would say, these are my children. The government uh, does not stand in locus parentis to me. They do not have a right to tell me how to raise my children if I'm doing so in a loving and caring manner. So that's, that's one example of social conservatism. Another example is, I believe in this God. I want to be free to worship, um, to practice my faith, and I do not believe that the government should interfere in that. So those are other examples of social conservatism. Um, a, a social conservatism may believe in marriage, and marriage may mean different things to different social conservatives. Um, a, a person, for example, who is a gay social conservative uh, would say, well, I want to get married rather than not get married and mm. so th they still have an aspect of social conservatism there because they choose to live in a marital relationship you mentioned religious rights are religious rights being violated right now in canada um what i i would need some clarification if you're speaking about anything specifically anthony 
Well, well, I don't know. I just mean you, you brought it up as an example of people saying, look, religious rights matter to me. And, and is there currently a, a battleground? Is there a situation where people's religious rights are not being adequately respected in Canada such that uh, we, we need a remedy from a politician such as yourself? Well, I, for example, let me just give you one small example. The conversion therapy ban, if we can talk about something more controversial. I've always yeah, been against conversion therapy. I think it's an atro atrocious act. I do not believe that uh, if, well, I believe that if any medical practitioner is administering nauseous substances to somebody or electrocution or practicing those heinous acts, they should lose their license. Um, but some pastors believe that if a grown adult comes to them and says, you know what, I would like to talk about this particular issue, and they're not trying to convert the person or change them, but they are having just a, a conversation with them, that that should be permitted. So some pastors feel that they're very concerned, even if a parent brings a child to them and says, okay, well, we would like to, to speak about this issue. Maybe my child is considering um, getting a sex change, and so we want to make sure that they're emotionally and psychologically ready, and you're a trusted person that we'd like to have a conversation with. Um, pastors have communicated to me now that they are afraid to have those conversations. So things such as those, I do believe that... Uh, that people of faith may believe that um, those are some issues that they would like to make sure that um, they are not inadvertently targeted by certain legislation. And I've heard people of faith say that, that they're concerned that they, they don't want certain laws to inadvertently target them. Yeah, one thing I always found interesting about Ontario's uh, conversion therapy legislation is it effectively made it against the law for people working in places like CAMH uh, to do anything other than than gender reaffirming. When someone comes and says, I, I believe I, I, I might need a sex change, uh, the medical professional can't really say, okay, I've assessed things and, and, you know, no, you don't. They more have to do something that puts them on a pathway uh, to going ahead with that, even if the medical professional says, well, hold on a second, maybe there needs to be some counseling or some more psychological services. This is a big, big step you're taking in your life. Let's make sure we're getting things right. And I, I was surprised to learn that, uh, that the legislation really pushes away from that and, and I fear that the way we talk about these sort of issues, well, I guess that we don't talk about them. We don't talk about them in a in the sort of nuanced, big picture way they deserve. Instead, they're very kind of blunt conversations and we just kind of attack someone if they even want to talk about them uh, exactly. more thoroughly. And, and that's a part of the problem, Anthony, because I judge um, members of the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community the same way I judge everyone else and that they are human being first. They are um, deserving of equal dignity and respect like anyone else. So when a piece of legislation comes in front of me, Anthony, whether you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community or another community or whether it's a BIPOC piece of legislation, um, I look at the legislative intent and I may be against something like conversion therapy, which I've always stated that I'm against. Um, but then I want to look at the legislation and look at whether or not there are any unintended consequences in it. Look at whether or not certain terms can be better defined. And as soon as you say that, 
you have people who make a living off of polarizing and demonizing and um, adopting canceled culture narratives, you have people like that attack you. And so what you have then is you start to have an echo chamber of people of, of passing legislations which are not fully uh, tweet like tweaked out like you, you don't get an opportunity to to fully engage with the legislation because you're afraid of being labeled and i think that that is really counterproductive i want to talk about a couple really big issues right now that canada is dealing with as a nation that the prime minister is of course dealing with want to get your take on how you would deal with things differently uh were you conservative leader were you prime minister COVID-19 seems like it's on the wane, seems like we're not going to be dealing with things like mask mandates and, and lockdowns again, but you never know. Dr. Theresa Tam has already threatened that in the fall. We may need to bring some things back. Uh, leadership race wrapping up in September. Uh, what do you think should happen in the fall if we see, yes, unfortunately, COVID-19 is, is surging again and there will be some voices, I feel like inevitably, because they always do, pushing for more restrictions to come in. Heaven forbid, more lockdowns. Uh, how would you contend with that? As leader of a federal party well i think it's important that um we learn from our mistakes and we've learned a lot in the past two years and i think it's important that we build on that that we make sure that we have good data that also we find a way to free up capacity in our healthcare system so we need some additional transfer funds to the provinces um, in the healthcare area to make sure that we can have health, uh, hospitals that are capable of dealing with increased uh, patients due to any type of pandemic. I think it's in, in also important that we do things to strengthen our economy and um, bring home our essential goods and supply chains by making sure that we are able to manufacture products such as gloves and um, respirators and masks within our country. The other big issue I want to talk about right now, the situation in Ukraine. Uh, we had uh, President Zelensky from Ukraine, of course, address the Canadian Parliament recently. Uh, he's calling for more action from NATO nations, from Canada, from the United States. Certainly a lot of outpouring of support from our country in terms of sanctions and providing materials. He is calling for a no-fly zone, though, that uh, Jen Stoltenberg at NATO has said, no, we can't do that. That would almost go on war uh, with, uh, with Russia. What do you think we should do moving forward on this file? Because a lot of people see these heartbreaking images, they want more to be done, but there's certain things that it seems that NATO nations say, no, that's gotta be off the table. Well, I think that one immediate thing that would have an immediate impact is a, a visa-free travel regime for the Ukraines um, to bring them immediately to safety uh, without the need to go to a, uh, a third country. Um, I think that um, that may require additional resources from Immigration Canada um, to support these measures, but I think that such measures are, are worthwhile. 
Now, we've certainly got a lot of people here who are sending support, also going abroad uh, to participate in military activities. Hundreds of Canadians have apparently already headed over to Ukraine. What do we do about that situation? I mean, the federal government, cabinet ministers, they've ranged from saying don't do that to kind of oh, no comment. Uh, they, they certainly don't want to be encouraging people in that situation. Uh, how do we respond to that scenario? Well, Anthony, I think that fighting a war is is something that requires skill. And I would hope that the people who are going over are well-trained. But I, I don't really, um, I would think that that is something that, they would probably consult the Canadian military about to make sure that they're not going over there and causing additional problems because there's organizations and and um, protocols that would be on the ground that they may not be familiar with. So um, I'm not too sure that that is a wise decision without consulting the proper um, the proper decision makers before doing that. At the beginning of our conversation, when I asked why you're running for leader, there's there's two issues you brought up right away, pretty much the first two you brought up that I want to circle back on here. You mentioned the environment, you mentioned the social safety net. When it comes to the government and regulating the environment and various environmental issues, uh, lots of headlines, lots of strong opinions, lots of controversy. Uh, when it comes to conservatives, there's generally pro-carbon tax, anti-carbon tax, a lot of split. We're seeing that playing out right now during this leadership race. Uh, do you support a carbon tax right now? Uh, no, Anthony, I do not support an individual carbon tax because I feel that they such a policy unfairly targets the individuals who are least able to afford it so every time you pump at the uh, pump gas for your car you're paying um, to heat your homes you're paying farmers are paying to dry their crops and these are individuals who can least afford um, the carbon tax in addition i don't believe the carbon tax is revenue neutral as been stated and i do not see how it's being used to protect the environment i think other policies need to be implemented in in order to make sure that we are number one developing our natural resources in an environmentally sustainable manner and that we're getting our lng to market because our lng worldwide can offset global emissions and we have to look at this on not just from a canadian perspective but how our products could impact on lowering emissions in other countries also. So there's lots of things that we could do to protect the environment, which doesn't include um, breaking the backs of average Canadians. When you talk about the social safety net, people having concerns for its future, I, I got to say, as a parent of, of young children, and I look at how things are much more different now than they were when I was growing up a couple decades ago, and, and much more fragile, I want to say, in terms of being concerned about, you know, will, will my kids have the benefits I had? Will my kids have a better life than I had? And, and there's a lot of nervousness around those questions. Uh, what are your perspectives on dealing with the economy moving forward, dealing with the social safety net, dealing with regular Canadians' abilities to have prosperity? Well, Anthony, I think coming out of COVID, it's very, very important that we have a plan to pay down our debt and reduce our deficit. Uh, I think it, 
it's it's very important that we do not saddle future generations with um, this hefty debt that we that we have here, and so we need a long term plan to do that to reduce the deficit, and um, that will only be done if we up our production, and so we need to create. Um, economy that we, we need to unleash the entrepreneurial spirit in our country back again when we recognize that over 80 percent of all canadians are employed by small and medium-sized businesses and they have suffered the most under covid we need to incentivize these businesses to take a chance again so that canadians are re-employed and that we can get the economy kick-started again also, we need to invest in our supply chain, our agricultural supply chain, and our manufacturing supply chain. If we invest in these two things, the spillover effect um, and the jobs created from these sectors will employ uh, many Canadians and it will kickstart the economy. So those are some of the things that I think that we, we have to be concerned about. And one of the biggest industries for that is our uh, oil and gas industry. Once we could reduce some of the legislations that has been unfavorable to that industry and start building our pipelines and and um, start generating work from that industry, you'll see a, a major trickle-down effect all over the country. Leslie Lewis, before we go, what would you hope that that members of the Conservative Party who are voting in this leadership race, what would you hope they take from you as your message? When they're, when they're looking at their ballot going, which name do I tick off? What does, what does your campaign stand for? Well, Anthony, I would say that my campaign stands for real authenticity. It, it's, you have somebody here in me who you will always know will speak the truth, will put policies forward that advance all Canadians and will not do so in a political partisan type of way. Um, I I know that my policies and, and, and Canadians in general, Anthony, they want to prosper. Whether, no matter what your color is, no matter what part of the country you live in, you want a united country, you want a country where your children have opportunities, where they can have the vision of owning a home, where they can have jobs, they have the right to work, they have a healthy environment, they have a healthcare system that's there for them in the future. They know that when they retire after years of working, there will be a pension there for them. And the only way that we can do that is by having a united and prosperous country where we're all working together, all regions working together for the prosperity of our nation. Leslie Lewis, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. Good luck to you. Thank you. Take care. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.